have you seen those uh, those accounts on Twitter where they're claiming to be Texans supporting Texit, but they're obviously yes. like Russian people? Is it, is it the Cold Water Port? Cold Water Port, yeah. Port, yeah. Sorry. And they'll, you know, yeah. Very, very funny. That's me. Like, you're stealing my notes for you. Didn't you put them there? <laughs> Take my fucking stuff. <laughs> people. Keep the, that in. Do not keep that the in. The theory that we all hate each other is going to be <laughs> yeah. vindicated. Okay. To another episode of the TLDR News Podcast, I'm Ben and I'm joined today by Zach Michaelis, our hello. Editor-in-Chief. Hello, yeah, hello. Yeah, hello. <laughs> and uh, Rory Taylor, the lead writer for TLDR Global. Hello. How are you doing? Yeah, good. We yeah, always yeah. say that with such scepticism. Like, yeah, has I he know. been promoted? I'm very he used to it. I know, now. I know. Yeah. It's uh, the never-ending debate about your title. Yeah, mm. this is a rare uh, combination for the Global Podcast. It, it is. Got Ben yeah. in the hosting very chair. Very rare. Exciting. Very rare. Well, as always with the podcast, we're going to start with uh, underreported stories, and then we're going to move on to our main topic today, which is about Tucker Carlson's um, reported interview with Vladimir Putin. So, should we just get straight into underreported stories? Uh, and Rory, we'll start with you. Okay, so mine is uh, quite a US-focused one, so I feel this is going to be quite a US-heavy podcast, but basically about how the Republican Party is is in a bit of a shambles at the moment. Um, we're kind of thinking, you know, obviously the Trump v. Biden thing, Biden's not looking great at the moment in the polls. But if you kind of step back and look at the parties as a whole, the Republican Party is not looking in a good, in a good way. So just recently they lost two back-to-back votes in the House of Representatives where they have a slim majority. Um, they failed to impeach the um, Secretary, Secretary for Homeland Security. Um, there was they're always kind of, you know, feuding with the Democrats over migration across the southern border. So they wanted to impeach uh, the uh, DHS secretary, but they failed to do that. Um, and then they lost a vote on um, a big aid package for Israel. Um, well, not aid, I guess, um, financial and military support. Um, so they lost those two votes, despite them having a majority. And, you know, if you're in charge of a majority in the House, usually you wouldn't table these kind of votes unless you're confident that you're going to pass them. Um, so it's a pretty big uh, defeat on those two. Um, more broadly than that, you've got the uh, chairwoman of the RNC, which is the you know the Republican National Committee, um, Ronna McDaniel. She's apparently going to step down in a few months. Um, this is after Trump has started criticizing her about various things like poor electoral electoral performances, as well as pretty weak fundraising, especially compared to the Democrats recently. Um, so yeah, ditching the head of your party. Uh, as you're kind of well into an election season, is is not a great look and not a, really the sign of a party that's fully together. Um, and then there was this more amusing thing of the Nevada caucus versus primary where they had effectively two separate things, um, which uh, was, wasn't was really a dispute within the party. It was more a dispute between the Nevada state Republicans and just the Nevada legislature as a whole. But uh, that kind of event <laughs> ended up with this quite amusing situation where Nikki Haley, who was sort of the only main candidate on the primary ballot, losing to the option of none of these candidates. You know, <laughs> it's so, also just really yeah. weird that, as you say, it was to do with a, a disagreement between um, sort of the Republican Party there and, and the legislature. But the fact that you have a, a primary which mm. doesn't give any delegates and you are you can opt in to run for yeah. that, and Haley opted to run in the primary, not the caucus. Yeah, uh, is is sort of mad in its own right. It's very odd, and I mean to be fair, the Democrats had a similar thing in New Hampshire where it was a, effectively a pointless primary where no delegates were awarded. 
but Biden managed to win that as a write-in candidate. Um, so the whole primary season this year has been a little bit weird, but yeah, the, the Nikki Haley losing to, to, to no one <laughs> is quite an amusing <laughs> yeah. side story to that, I yeah, think. very weird. I was just saying, the other thing I think that's interesting about that story and a phenomenon that's generally under-remarked upon is the fact about the Republican funding issues mm. and the fact that Republicans really struggle to fund and what to get as much funding or as many donations yeah. uh, as the Democrats, which hasn't been true historically, mm. um, but it's become a real issue for the Republicans recently. Yeah, I, I don't know the the figures in detail, but I I suspect that part of it is because the Trump campaign kind of individually managed manages to hoover up a lot of donations, whereas the Republican Party loses out when they go, you know, people donate straight to Trump. Um, which is obviously great for Trump if he's trying to get re-elected, but for the wider party, when they're thinking about local congressional Senate seats, um, that poses a bit more of a difficulty. Yeah. Yeah, well, it seems like it is going to be quite a heavy uh, yeah. US, um, US podcast today. Yeah. Anyway, Zach, have you got a story that isn't US related? Yeah, mine, mine is not it's not US related at all. Um, it's about the farmers' protests in Europe. Mm. Um, and obviously, the, the, these aren't like underreported per se insofar as... You know, we've seen quite a lot of headlines, especially in like the European press, um, about these farm protests. They really sort of began in, let's say, Germany uh, last month. I mean, there were some previous farm protests, obviously, in the Netherlands and then France last year. But the most recent spate sort of started in Germany, spread to France, and then more recently, I think they've been they reached Brussels. There was a yeah. the whole thing outside the European Parliament building. Um, I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, I think one of the things that I think is most interesting about this is the misframing of it, or at least to my mind, the misframing of it. Um, it's often framed, uh, and especially in sort of like right-wing discourse, as like the people, you know, the farmers, against like this sort of um, out-of-touch, soppy, liberal elites. Um, and how the politics of the energy transition have been framed in those terms, like how proponents of green policies have come to be seen as sort of like out-of-touch, sort of... Um, elitists mm. is just quite an amazing like shift because obviously the people most affected by let's just say the failure to make the green centers the people most affected by climate change are the world's poorest the elites are going to be fine you know what i mean like the world economic forum types i mean that's obviously a sort of conspiracy of its own but they're going to be fine like if you've got the money you you'll be fine um and it's people like farmers and just sort of your bog standard european citizens who will be worst affected mm. um but the fact that somehow that sort of natural framing has been reversed, I think is a bit of, it's in part just a symptom of quite opportunistic politics. Um, but it's also because I just don't think that like the left has made the argument well enough that actually the green transition, specifically the issues that farmers are having, isn't really to do with like out of touch cultural elites. It's mainly a consequence of like decades of, let's just like, lack of a better term, like neoliberal policies that have opened up European and developed countries' farming practices to basically very, very difficult competition from places like South America, from places like Africa. Um, that's the, what the Mercosur Free Trade Agreement is all about. That's just sort of been scrapped by Macron recently. Um, and the other thing is that the, the, the solution, I mean, the green transition, one of the reasons it's so unpalatable is just because what's actually happening here is the the sort of burden of the green transition, it just is very expensive. The burden is falling on farmers and people, but the, the, the people you should be directing your anger at then are not the sort of like out-of-touch cultural elites. You should be directing your anger at rich people then mm. because someone has to pay, assuming we don't all want to suffer the costs of, the, of climate change. And if someone has to pay, surely it should be rich people. 
Um, so I just think that, that that the fact that the the green transition and the politics of climate change have become sort of anti elitist in that way is just quite like confused. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and um, sounds like you're rolling out your manifesto here. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, if you want to vote for my sort of weird, soppy leftist green party, yeah. then yeah, fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, do you see what I mean there? Like, do you see that? Like, it's weird that it's been framed as like climate policies are for the rich. Yes. They shouldn't be for the rich. Like the, the climate is like a classic collective action problem that rich people can survive and poor people can't. Sounds like in part a, a sort of failure of um, communicating policy as well. Yeah, I think it is a, a real failure to communicate policy. It's a, it's a failure for like green parties to push back against like mm. the BBB in the Netherlands and stuff. Be like, no, no, guys, this isn't, this isn't us. This is the consequence of, of years of like sort of small C conservative uh, policies when it comes to distribution and then sort of like quite right-wing ideas about opening up agriculture, European agriculture to international competition, which has really put a strain on farmers' living standards. Um, yeah, so I think that's, uh, yeah, I, I, mean, there's, I think there's so much that you could say about the farmers' protests, and we don't have to go into it now, but there's so much you could say about it. Um, and the fact that in the headlines, what is like quite a fundamental issue and sort of very, very fundamental and sort of like um, telling piece of, the, of climate politics has just sort of been like framed as like a classic, yeah. like populist against mm. Brussels bureaucrats <laughs> sort of. It's been, it's been sort of folded into that framework is just a bit, it's just, I don't think it's good journalism and I don't think it's like, it's an honest analysis of the problem. Yeah. Sorry, that's my No, opinion. no, that's yeah. very good. Well, both very good um, underreported stories and it's good that we've at least not done a full sweep of US <laughs> stories this week. <laughs> So uh, that, was, that was quite good. So it was announced this week on Twitter that Tucker Carlson had gone to Moscow and there was a bit of speculation earlier about whether he was there to interview uh, President Putin. Then it was announced that he very much was. He released a four-minute trailer to the, to the interview. Uh, was it yesterday or the day before? So, Rory, do you want to just give us a little bit of background on the actual interview itself yeah. and, you know, how it came about? So Tucker Carlson was... Spotted, he'd been to the uh, is it the Bolshoi Ballet mm. Theater in, in Moscow, and all these little grainy photos and videos of him, and all the speculation came up. And yeah, he is going to interview Vladimir Putin. Ever since he got uh, kicked off Fox News, he's gone kind of fully online and is doing his own show. He's done all sorts of things. He's interviewed, I think, Javier Millet. He interviewed, he interviewed Victor Orban. So he's kind of piecing together this this right wing nexus across the world that he's trying to kind of fit himself into just he also did that and before we give him too much credibility <laughs> that interview with the guy who claimed to have gay sex with obama Remember yes yeah, yeah he also interviewed a uh, famous um right-wing american twitter user called cat turd as well mm. so um <laughs> he's really been had his ups Quite and downs resume, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah um anyway so yeah he's going to interview vladimir putin and tucker carlson's logic is that since Russia invaded Ukraine, the Western media uh, has deliberately kind of ignored Putin's you know, arguments in favour of Ukraine's arguments, and they haven't made an effort to try and hear what Putin has to say. He's not saying he agrees with him, he's just saying let's hear what he has to say because he believes in free speech and that type of thing. Um, lots of other journalists, some based in Russia, some outside of Russia, have pointed out that they have continuously over the years been seeking interviews with Vladimir Putin only to be denied by the Kremlin because the Kremlin doesn't want to speak to, you know, the BBC or CNN or whoever. Um, but the Kremlin obviously is more favourable to speaking to Tucker Carlson. Um, 
So that was the first kind of uh, argument that this created was that Tucker Carlson was claiming that he's the only one who's actually wanted to interview Putin, which is definitely not the case. Um, but yeah, that's the main argument at the moment. I think the interview is going to happen Thursday next week, so it won't come out until then, mm. presumably. Um, we don't know exactly what Carlson is going to ask him. We don't know the kind of framing of the questions he'll, you know, he'll, he'll pose to Putin. So I think we'll have to wait and see for that. Um, but it's this very strange situation where uh, it's almost like really representative of this slight awkward alliance between some of the conservative elements in the US mm. and the conservative Putin elements in Russia. It was particularly interesting as well in that announcement video that he spent so much time um, berating sort of Western media, mm. as you say, for, for not interviewing Putin, despite the fact that they've been trying yeah. for sort of, I, I can't remember the exact word he used, but essentially glorifying Zelensky yeah. um, and doing like puff piece interviews uh, with him. But he didn't in any way sort of criticise, there was no, there was no, sort of, other than saying, you know, I want you to watch the, this video, you don't have to agree with Putin. Outside of that, there was no criticism of him. There was a lot of criticism of of Western media yeah. and their failure to, to, to represent Putin's side. There's no, there's none of that which which sort of leads you to think that the the interview may well, and you know, considering it's taking place in Russia, mm. it's not going to be a particularly hard hitting interview. I wouldn't imagine. Um, you know, it's not going to be. He's not going to presumably bring up war crimes in Ukraine or things like that. Um, if you're, there's just no way that Putin would would allow that. Um, so I, I I don't know how he he, he thinks he can get away mm. with making those claims that um, you know these interviews with Zelensky are, are puff pieces and his isn't going to be. I, I can't see a world in which his, yeah. his isn't. Yeah, because if he's making the argument that this is about free speech, then if you're a, a passionate advocate of free speech, presumably if you had the chance to speak to Putin, morally you should question him about the massive, you know, kind of crackdown on free speech in Russia. But mm. um, we'll have to wait, wait and see about that. Yeah, I'm... Yeah, I don't want to be the guy defending Tucker Carlson necessarily <laughs> here, and I think well, you are going to be. Well, I think it's very easy to to, to 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 mock him in certain respects, and he does deserve mockery for some of the interviews that we just mm. mentioned. Um, but I wouldn't rule the interview out before it's happened um, because I think that there is a set of incentives that would suggest that Putin might still accept the interview, even if it involves some slightly hard hitting questions, because in the aggregate, it's good for him. Because but so the, I think the reason Putin has said yes to Tucker Carlson and, and no one else is, is there's a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that Tucker Carlson is a regular in Russian state media. I think it's worth saying. So whenever Tucker Carlson does those pieces, we used to do them on Fox News and now he does them on Twitter where he talks about how, you know, he, he pushes those theories about there being Nazis in Ukraine mm. or he says something anti-Ukraine. That very quickly gets replayed on Russian state media. And so he's actually quite a familiar face mm. in Russia. I think that's something that's worth mentioning is that obviously like there's very little overlap between like Russian and Western media. But Tucker Carlson is one of those very few people in the sort of bisection of that Venn diagram. Um, I think the other thing is that there is this like mutual interest and affinity with certain cultural issues, which I think is really quite odd. Like I think quite a lot of the American right sees like Vladimir Putin as sort of like... Um, the protector of traditional values, yeah. like a sort of a true Christian. Um, and I think there's that interest. And they, something that Vladimir Putin's adopted quite recently is, is a lot of sort of anti-LGBT rhetoric, sort of anti-trans rhetoric. Um, and this is something, by the way, that I'd say like ideologically consistent Russian nationalists were really quite grumpy about during the war in Ukraine because they were like, look, we can get on board with Putin's stuff about protecting ethnic Russians in Donbass. We can get on board about NATO expansion. But Putin, what are you doing talking about all this weird stuff about 
anti-LGBT, anti-trans stuff. Like, it's just not relevant. Um, but I think the main reason that Putin's doing it is he just wants to stoke isolationist sentiment mm. in America. Because obviously the trajectory of the war in Ukraine depends massively on not just like who wins the 2024 election, but how American public opinion towards Ukraine changes over the next like couple of years or so. So I think if he thinks that he can stoke isolationist sentiment in America, he might be willing to take a couple of slightly more hard-hitting questions from Tucker Carlson on stuff like, um, you know, like I think journalistic freedom would be a really good example. Like Tucker Carlson is nominally all about freedom of speech mm. and how that is consistent or, or, or basically, yeah, how that is consistent with the way that Russia treats journalists. It's just, it's just not. Like, but, but considering, you might ask a question about that plausibly. But considering that in, in Russia, you know, there have been people that have referred to it as a war versus a, you know, special military operation, special military operation, that, that that can have legal ramifications and often does have legal ramifications. Like the, the idea that Carlson will be allowed to ask any particularly hard-hitting the, questions the law, about the war in Ukraine the, the specifically. Things on, the thing to understand about the law in Russia is it's, it's clearly <laughs> yeah. not rule of law. It's applied politically. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so obviously it would be sort of conveniently suspended in that respect if Putin thinks it furthers his uh, sort of like overall geopolitical aims by accepting some of those questions. It's also worth saying that he does accept those like some relatively hard in questions from people like Steve Rosenberg at the BBC. Mm. He just has a very good knack of deflecting them. He just sort of just goes like, it's also, it's always made harder by the fact there's a translator, especially in like Tucker Carlson mm. case. Like, you know, he'll ask a hard in question. It's very hard to follow up because there's that sort of delay yeah. when Putin says something ambiguous and there's a sort of translation ambiguity there. Uh, and then he'll sort of go like, oh, we haven't got time, we can move on. So I think it's very plausible that Tucker Carlson might get some actually legitimate questions in. And I, maybe in the aggregate, uh, it, it might even end up being a good thing, by the way, for like the sort of uh, the way America sees the war in Ukraine. Um, and if, if, the, like, if Tucker Carlson can get some of those questions, I think it's unlikely, but I just don't want to rule it out before it happens. Um, but yeah, so that's my, my point there is that he might get some of those hardening questions in there, but I think that they, Putin will probably find a way of deflecting them. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, well, I can't remember what my original point was now. <laughs> well, th- um, yeah, yeah, I was gonna say the thing you mentioned that I think is really interesting is that overlap between the like anti woke kind of culture war stuff that seems Putin seems to have adopted, and it's like a bit of a uh cultural victory for the US that their those right wing talking points have sort of made their way across the sea and been adopted. That's a really good point. Uh, I about it. It's another instance of American cultural hegemony. Yeah. Like everyone just ends up adopting American talking points, even if they're not at all relevant to your domestic yeah. discourse. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite, quite depressing actually in a way. It happens <laughs> in the UK as well that we obviously, yeah. you see that with a lot of the, like the Liz Truss rhetoric is just clearly just parroted from Republicans, even if mm. it doesn't like match British public opinion or really it's not really informed by British political history. Um, mm. But yeah, I just want, I think we should, before we like necessarily rule it out, I think it could be perhaps a little bit more interesting than people think it's going to be. Yeah, maybe I'm being too sceptical. I just, I, I'm very much of the opinion that, that this is obviously being done in Putin's favour. This is obviously being done on home turf as well. This is presumably a, a situation where um, Carlson doesn't have the backing of the US. You know, they've tried to stop him doing this interview once before. Oh, yeah. um, you know, in terms of diplomacy, he's not going to have too much support. So this is very much being done on Putin's terms um, in, in basically every conceivable sense. Um, and, and the risks inherent in that probably mean that, that Carlson is, is going to feel unable to ask certain questions. Um, you know, maybe I'm being too optimistic. I have this sort of like vague hope. Maybe, it's, maybe this is a sort of like a psychologically understandable reaction to what could be a very bad thing. But basically mm. I have this vague hope that actually this interview, it, 
he, but Tucker Carlson is fundamentally right that Americans don't know enough about what's going on in Ukraine. Not for the reasons he's implying. It's not because mm. like Ukraine, Russia has a better case for invading Ukraine than the media in America thinks, but actually because the media in America just doesn't know enough about what's happening in Ukraine or how important it is, how important American withdrawal is, like how much damage it do to America's international standing and you know European security, if we're looking at it from that perspective. Um, and so I have this sort of vague hope that this might like, even if it's sort of direct at Tucker Carlson's base, yeah, who are just going to be like, yeah, yeah, boo, you know, boo the West, like um, our moral degeneracy, we should get out of Ukraine. Mm. It might sort of like restart um, or like reinvigorate American interest in the war in Ukraine. And, and maybe if sort of there's a, there's a world in which Putin's responses play well to Tucker's base, the sort of the, the furthest right bit of the American electorate, but actually your median American looks at sort of like Putin's, let's just, let's just imagine it's like an incessant focus on like cultural issues in a really quite unpalatable way and goes like, oh my God, like this guy, you know, there aren't really two sides to this Russia-Ukraine thing. I care again. And this guy's clearly a bad dude, you know? So maybe that's a very optimistic take. Maybe, that, <laughs> I, But I just sort of think he's sort of fundamentally right that Americans don't know enough about what's happening in Ukraine. And if this reinvigorates interest in it, even if it sort of like reaffirms the very furthest bit of the American rights prior assumptions about it, then maybe that'd be in the aggregate good for the Ukrainian cause vis-a-vis American public opinion. I think that the, I, I just, I think the idea that this comes out and, and works well for Ukrainian public support in, in America, I think I just, I find that the unlikely Maybe outcome. it's too optimistic. Um, yeah, like, like, you might be right. You know, this being done on, on, on Russian soil. But anyway, the, the other interesting thing that I, I did, you know, think about this was that Carlson had, had supposedly been in talks with Putin about doing this last year, and he claimed in the video that the US, and again, it's just some claims from him, I don't know how um, true this is, but he, he claimed in the video that the US government had, had attempted to block his interview originally, and this time he's just gone to Moscow without them knowing effectively so that he could definitely conduct the interview. Um, do either of you have any sort of opinions on that and the, the fact that, you know, he, he's taken such an extreme measure to make this interview happen? you know, considering the US has, has attempted to block it already last year. It's just great publicity for him, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, he is the only journalist in the West to get an interview with Vladimir Putin. It's just, it's, I mean, you know, if we're just looking at it from Tucker Carlson's perspective, this is an, a, a massive win. If he was on the board, scoop. he'd be at the top, yeah. mm. frankly. And, um, you know, they're just, uh, yeah, he's, he's done well for himself. <laughs> it's yeah. definitely a step up from interviewing some of the other people who've yeah. interviewed. That's 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 for sure. Was, yeah. it, I mean, was it last week that he interviewed Russell Brand of all people, and he's moved from that to Vladimir Putin, which just seems yeah. he's got a more confused like world leader leaderboard than we. Yeah, yeah. He, really does. yeah. he really really does. Um, if I'm going to pose a question, yeah. If we got a call saying, uh, "Would you like to interview Vladimir Putin?" Kremlin calls us up. What would you say? I would say yes, but you, it's worth saying that, you know, again, he, I'm not saying he's a good dude, but Vladimir Putin is a good interviewer, interviewee. Mm. He is, he's good at deflecting questions. He's like a, he's a well-versed statesman. It's, it's hard to dispute that. Like, um, I think it'd be very difficult to pin down. There was, the, when he was there, when he was doing speeches in the early kind of phases of the war, he would just constantly talk about like Russian history for like quite a long mm. time. He'd gone about, you know, stuff yeah. that Lenin said and did and, and you know you kind of get to the end of him saying that, and you've probably forgotten what your question actually was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you would get probably overwhelmed on the Russian history front mm. by him. But he, no, I, I think it's one of those where I think you'd have to take it, but I think it would probably end up backfiring. And I don't want to diss myself here, but I'd probably end up looking like a little <laughs> Western soy boy. And 
He'd <laughs> outknowledge me on a whole load of things. What about you, Rory? Would you? Um, probably not. No. I just don't think he's got anything that I, I, I feel like I've heard his justifications for the war in Ukraine. I don't think I'm going to get anything new out of him on that. It's more because of my, my, I'm not an experienced interviewer. I'm not an interviewer at all. Mm, I don't yeah. think I do a very good job. Um, if you were writing the questions, if someone else was interviewing and you were, you were asked, Rory, we need you to, to write the questions. Yeah, probably not. Probably no, not. still no. 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 Okay. <laughs> it would be quite wild. It would be it? wild, yeah. Yeah. No, I um, mean, it's, it's yeah. And so I get to sit at the end of a very long table when I, when I interview him. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think that um, sort of rounds that topic off quite nicely. Um, should we move on? Oh, oh okay. I was just saying, the only thing I think is, the last thing I think is really interesting about this uh, thing is I think it there is something to be said for the fact that not just in America, but actually across the developed world, people are taking more of an interest in foreign policy. People didn't really care about foreign policy for a very, very long time. That was like just like a truism of politics, like you don't win elections on foreign policy. And I think that sort of probably started changing after Iraq, and that's why successive American presidential elections have been fought with this whole, like, have uh, been fought on part on the question of war, on like basically getting out of the Middle East. You know, that has been like, that was Obama's pitch, sort of Trump's pitch. It was like, we can't do the Middle East, we've got to be doing China. Um, and one of the reasons I think Hillary lost is that she was the sort of like, go back into Russia, and to a lot of people that felt like, sort of like, it felt like going back in history, back mm. in time sort of thing. Um, but the, I think the, the, the public is sort of paying attention to foreign policy and realizing quite how important foreign policy is for domestic prosperity. Um, and I think we're in this sort of like difficult uh, adjustment period where foreign policy is like a, a topic of interest for the public, but we haven't figured out a way to talk about it coherently. Do you see what mm. I mean? Like I think that the public discourse on foreign policy is just chaos. You know, and yeah. this is partly like a function like social media and stuff. But I think it's it's a sort of transition phase. Phase. I think that the, we're in the same way that like when, I don't know when this happened, but like, for example, talk about the economy wasn't commonplace in domestic politics until really like the 60s and 70s. Before then it was more classic talk about like wages and stuff like that. And we start talking in like big broad terms about the economy and sort of GDP. And it took us a bit of time to get used to that discourse and for people to sort of like find their feet and like understand what was going on. I sort of am optimistic. Maybe I'm just, I'm just trying to find notes of optimism here all over the place. <laughs> but like, mate, I'm sort of optimistic that this is the beginning of people realizing that foreign policy is just so important. As you can't ignore it when you're talking about why anything political these days. The world is just too globalized. Um, and this, sure, at the moment, we haven't really figured out how to talk about it. And we haven't found like a sort of consensus. You need like a sort of like a you need to have an Overton window. You need to have a sort of like an anchor to talk about anything complicated. And we haven't found our anchor as like a collective public. But mm -hmm. hopefully in maybe a couple of years time, we'll have more coherent chat about foreign policy and we'll be both interested and sort of informed about it. As long as the result of that isn't that we get a load more content creators flying out to interview dictators, then <laughs> I'm very happy with that. You know, if we get to the point where KSI sort of interviews, you know, Putin or, you know, someone else, then then I think that, that's, yeah. that's, that's where it, you draw the line. But no, that's very interesting. I think you're probably right. I think there probably has been an uptick in interest recently. Maybe because of your video, Zach. Maybe that's what it is. I'm doing my part. Yeah, you know, yeah. you're doing there your bit. Go. Good. Um, anyway. Well, we're done with this bit anyway. So, uh, yeah, let's move on and let's do the uh, world-famous uh, World Leader Leaderboard. Yeah. Okay, right, let's get straight into it then. Rory, who this week is moving down? 
I'm moving down a new addition to the wall. Oh, right. um, Jack pledged last episode that, well, he, he taught, basically told me and Zach that we had to introduce new faces to the wall this episode. So I've got a new one. Um, Yoon Suk Yol, the uh, South yes. Korean president. Yeah. He's going down um, mainly because... Don't pass me. Yeah, I'll, I'll cool. move him across. Um, so he's gone... His approval rating has slipped a bit. Uh, one poll put it at about 29%. Another poll put it at about 34% isn't great um especially as there are leg legislative elections coming up in south korea in april where his party uh doesn't have a majority the opposition party currently has a majority so he's hoping to claw back some seats maybe get a majority to make his life a lot easier but he's he slipped in the polls partly because of this controversy that has happened over the last month or so i think where his wife the first lady uh was f secretly filmed accepting a very expensive dior handbag as a gift, um, which didn't go down well with people. Um, so that's partly why he's slipped in the polls. But um, yeah, yeah, I can't imagine that would help him. No, 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 definitely not. So Zach, uh, who are you moving down? I am moving down BB Netanyahu. I see. For two reasons. One, Amazing. I think has been quite well covered and the other less so. But the first reason yeah. is to okay. do with UNRWA, which is the UN refugee agency for Palestine. Um, and... There was a report, well, a couple of reports, uh, I think last month now, maybe it was, yeah, last month, that UNRWA staff were involved in the October 7th attacks. I think like seven UNRWA staff were involved in the, in the attacks. Um, and UNRWA said that they'd suspended the, these staff and they were, or maybe they'd fired them, but they were investigating the matter. Um, but the US announced that it had pulled funding from UNRWA. Uh, and then a whole load of Western countries quickly followed suit. So I think Germany, the UK, UK Canada, Canada, yeah. Um, and, I mean, that's pretty catastrophic. UNRWA warned that they were going to run out of money by the end of this month, basically, which would obviously exacerbate the already, like, terrible humanitarian situation in Gaza. Um, but in the last couple of days, there have been a handful of reports, and the main one comes from Channel 4, who got hold of the, like, original evidence. And basically, the, the, the evidence doesn't demonstrate, or it's very, very flimsy, um, mm. the evidence that, that Israel provided to first... UNRWA and then onto these Western countries like the US, suggesting that UNRWA took part in the October 7th attacks was very, very flimsy. Um, and I think the US, they didn't say that they'd seen the same thing, but there was this, this a couple of days before the Channel 4 report came out, the US sort of changed tack where they said like, yeah, we've normally pulled funding, but we already gave UNRWA the funding for this year, so we haven't actually really pulled funding. You know, we're just sort of pausing yeah. it. I don't think the same can be said for places like Germany, which actually did pull funding. Um, and I think that was because the, probably the Americans had also taken a look at it and gone like, oh, this is not as strong as we thought it was. Um, and I think this is, this is obviously immensely damaging to Israel's credibility. Uh, I think, you know, obviously picking a fight with the UN in the first place is always politically pretty risky. Um, but then losing a fight with the UN is mm. even worse. Um, <laughs> And then the other thing is that today the Saudis have put out a statement basically saying what was always sort of like wink, wink, nudge, nudged, which is that what was sort of implied in Saudi rhetoric or diplomatic rhetoric, which was that the recognition, not slash normalization process between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which was like supposed to be the big, uh, the, the sort of like the big success of the Abraham Accords if it was going to happen. Um, wouldn't it's basically not going to happen anytime soon, and it will only happen if there is serious progress made towards a two-state solution. Mm. Um, 
And I think this is bad news for a while. Some people think like, well, obviously this is going to be a Saudi position. Like how else could they take anything else? But I think the fact that the Saudis hadn't made this like officially explicit was a symptom of the fact that until very, very recently, the Saudis really did hope that actually this could all like pass. And then once people have sort of forgotten about it, they mm. could just resume normalization. Because that's what the Saudis have always wanted. Right? The, the Saudis sort of foreign policy orientation has been all about normalizing relations with all of their sort of like enemies. You know, Iran is another good example. By the way, the Iranian army chief was just in Saudi Arabia, which was, that's a proper underreported story. <laughs> that's a wild story. Um, I mean, that's the closest like cooperation you've seen between Saudi Arabia and Iran since 1979. Wild. Anyway, the, um, but, and, and they wanted to do the same with Israel, obviously, but they couldn't. I think they've just realized that politically they can't um, because of the way Arab opinion has turned towards yeah. Israel. Um, and I think that's a real, that, I mean, that, that really is damaging for the Israelis because the Saudi Arabia is sort of, it's the it's what Egypt was in the 70s, like, you know, where Saudi Arabia goes, other Arab countries normally mm. follow. And so if the Saudis decide that they can't resume diplomatic sort of progress with the Israelis, that doesn't bode well for Israel, Israel's like wider regional relations, especially by the way, because the Saudis and the Iranians are normalizing relations. And if progress is made on that, that really leaves Israel isolated because there was previously a sort of foreign policy rationale behind the Saudi-Israel relationship in that, like, you know, we both have a mutual enemy yeah. in Iran. Uh, and if that goes, then all of a sudden Israel looks very, very isolated. I think um, it's interesting how the dynamic has shifted since October 7th and the subsequent war, because when Trump was in office, or the last time Trump was in office, and, you know, he he kind of, or his administration pushed through the Abraham Accords, you know, big historic... Um, diplomatic normalization between Israel and, and a few Arab countries, that was effectively done over the heads of the Palestinians. They didn't really, they didn't approve of it. They didn't, they weren't involved basically. Um, but now, now since everything's happened since October 7th, you've got lots of countries, including the UK, um, Saudi Arabia, obviously, and even uh, parts of the Biden administration saying, you know, making it clear that, you know, the, the establishment of a, Palestinian state, you know, the two-state solution is essential and it has to be done with, you know, something effectively Israel can't just act unilaterally now. You know, the, there is a lot of focus on securing a state for the Palestinians, you know, something that is approved by the Palestinians that I feel like you didn't get, you didn't get that kind of um, support for that principle before um, October 7th and before the war. That might all change if Trump comes back in, obviously, but... Um, yeah, I think that's quite an interesting shift. Well, I think what's really interesting is that two-state solutions sort of fell out of favor in the last like, couple of years yeah. because everyone was like, well, it's just, it's impossible to make that a reality because of settlers in the West Bank because mm. you'd have to sort of move them back to basically create a two-state solution that was palatable to the Palestinians. Um, but the, you know, the one-state solution now just looks impossible. Mm. I mean, people have realized that the one-state solution, given the state of sort of like Palestine-Israel relations is is mm. just like it's, it's a it's a nightmare, mm. and a two-state solution. It really is the worst. It's the best of a series of really bad options. Um, I think it's been quite quite interesting watching David Cameron on that. By the way, yeah, he's, he's been surprisingly vocal about it, and it feels like slightly out of step with the UK government. But I guess he is talking for the UK there was, government. But. There was an article that was, I, th I think it was New Statesman or something today, that was saying that part of that is that because he's not an MP, and mm. he can sort of be outside of the Commons, it gives him a lot more sort of ability to be um, more sympathetic to the Palestinian cause without upsetting uh, without upsetting other MPs, effectively. Well, I think worth saying two things. One as well, David, I can't believe we're going to make this much out of David Cameron, but <laughs> I know. one as well, David Cameron cuts political teeth in the early 2000s. And yeah. the early 2000s, two-state solution still very much is in vogue. And the other thing is that 
before he becomes prime minister, or when he's leader of the opposition, basically, David Cameron actually is quite pro-Gaza. Yeah. Well, not pro-Gaza, let's just say like sort of Israel skeptic. I think he does describe Gaza as something like an open-air prison at some point. Yeah, he um, did. Yeah, yeah, really irritating um, the, the Israelis. And he changed his position, obviously, because most prime ministers do. Once he came into office, something similar was true of Tony Blair, by the way, um, and Boris Johnson, actually. But yeah, I think actually David Cameron's political instincts are not necessarily super pro-Israel. Yeah, I agree. Um, but yeah. So where's he moving on the board? Good, good point. I Actually, we should have moved him up. He's not He's not even on there. Yeah. Oh, he's not? Yeah. We should get him on at some yeah, point. Yeah, we should get yeah. him on. Oh, we haven't even got anyway, that. Anyway, we need board. to do... Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. so that was all That was all <laughs> moving down. Yes. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, might have to limit how long you can talk yeah. But Rory, let's move to people moving up. Who are you yes. moving up this week? I'm uh, moving up George Maloney, Italian are Prime you? Minister. Okay. Um, maybe a bit of a tenuous one this week, but hopefully it's okay. Italian growth? Outstripping Germany? No, that's pretty good. Uh, There's that. But also, um, there's a few reports kind of detailing her involvement in the the, the kind of wooing of and charming of Viktor Orban to get him to approve the uh, aid package for Ukraine. So she's received a little bit of, uh, you know, kudos for that. Um, And also off the back of that, uh, Viktor Orban has said that his party might be open to joining the um, European Conservatives and Reformists, the ECR group in the European Parliament, which is the group that Maloney is the president of. And if his uh, MEPs do join that, that will give that grouping a big boost um, ahead of or after the European parliamentary elections. Because there's currently this, the, uh, the the right in the European parliament, you've got the, the kind of classic centre-right, the EPP, then you've got the slightly further right ECR, then even further right um, Identity Europa. And there's kind of jostling for third place within the European parliament between Identity Europa and the ECR. So if she can get Orban on side, that will give that group a boost. Um, big caveat that that could cause all sorts of problems having Orban on your team. Yeah. But we'll get to that if it, you know, if it comes up. Yeah, but yeah, she's going up. No, that makes sense. Yeah, and but it seems that Zach agrees as well with it. With them going up, so even better. Yeah. Um, right, Zach, who are you moving up? I am moving up Alexander Stubb. I hope that's the right pronunciation. Okay. Um, who is the one? Well, the leading candidate. I think it's fair to say in the Finnish presidential election. Um, the, so it's, a two, it's not necessarily two rounds, but no candidate won a majority in the first round, which happened like a week or so ago. Um, and so they went on to the second round, the top two candidates. It's him and a guy called Havisto, who is like a sort of more left-wing, quite sort of like eco-conscious politician. Uh, head-to-head polling done like a couple of weeks ago suggests that Stubb should win really by something like five, uh, 10 to 15 points. Uh, so, like, the polling gave him, like, 55, 45. Um, and, well, it's it's a pretty important position. I mean, the, the Finnish president actually does have some powers. They're nominally responsible for, like, foreign policy. Um, and that's obviously very, very important at the moment in Finland because they've just done, joined NATO. And, obviously, they border Russia. So that's, like, a point of anxiety there. We've done a couple of videos on why Finland is uninvadable. Um <laughs> And very good videos, by very the way. good videos. Um, and his predecessor, uh, Sally Ninisto, that's the right pronunciation. That's how it's spelled. I don't know how it's yeah. spelled. Ninisto, yeah. oh, very good. <laughs> I've died. <laughs> I dabbled. Yeah. I dabbled. <laughs> um, uh, was probably the most popular politician in, in Europe. So he mm. had served two terms, I think, and he reliably enjoyed approval ratings above 90%. So, you know, that being the Finnish president can be quite a good gig. Yeah. Yeah. 
advice to anyone looking <laughs> yeah. at their career prospects. Yeah, really. yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You've got the accent well, for it. You know? Well, there we go. <laughs> I've, been, I've been practicing. Anyway, thank you both. That was uh, That's good. So updated the board. And uh, yeah, thank you for watching. <laughs> Am I meant to do some big outro? No, no, no that's it's good. fine. Yeah. That's good.